Dispatch One. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Weird Podcast. So this is going to be the first of what I call the Dispatch Episodes, or just Dispatches if you prefer. See, initially I thought of this as a way to give my first impressions on movies that have come out recently. Now, though, I'm going to alter the rules a slight bit. See, due to the disruption caused by the pandemic for the last couple of years, I'm playing catch-up with a lot of movies right now that I haven't been able to see until recently. Some because I didn't have the money or time to go to the theater, some because the theaters were closed, some weren't on a streaming service, I couldn't rent them from my library, etc. So, going forward, the rule is Dispatch episodes will be covering movies that got a North American-wide release in theaters or on a streaming service after March of 2020. And again, these are just my initial responses, so I'm not going on an in-depth analysis on most beyond giving them some background information. This is just a first viewing X out of 10 score. Unlike regular episodes, I will avoid spoilers as much as possible. Uh, Some I may retread in future regular episodes, and I do reserve the right to change my opinions and score later. If uh, if you've seen YourMovieSucks.org on YouTube, this is basically just me shamelessly stealing his quickie format. Anyway, uh, these episodes are counted separate from the regular episodes and the supplements, So if way down the line I say I reference this something being in episode 10, I'm not talking about the 10th episode. I'm talking about the 10th regular episode. So just skip any supplements or ones that have dispatch in the title. Uh, All that out of the way, let's begin because I'd say I had a solid five here today. So the first on the docket is a Danish film called Another Round by Thomas Winterberg. stars Mads Mikkelsen. And we follow four middle-aged friends who all teach at a gymnasium school in Copenhagen. So they gather on the 40th birthday of one of them. And they kind of share this overall malaise feeling in their life that they've become kind of stale and boring. So they decide to do something unique and test this uh, hypothesis by a Norwegian psychiatrist who is believed, mistakenly I should say, to have claimed humans actually have a blood alcohol content that is uh, 0.50. 0.05 too low, and that a human is more creative and relaxed when they can maintain that level, well, 0.05 basically. So if you live in the U.S., just like uh, three points under what the you know legal limit is. The group decides that they're going to test this theory and create a little group log and set down rules for responsible use. I'm going to say what I love most about the movie was that it blended the drama and the black comedy really, really well. And the fact that the film doesn't shy away from showing, you know, negative consequences of their drinking, because a lot of times that's kind of what makes a comedy kind of fall flat, is that uh, sometimes they just don't bother showing, you know, consequences for actions. It just kind of moves on. But it manages to treat the excess and the consequences like the you know, disruptions it causes in their family lives and their work lives. And it keeps it within the bounds of good taste and it doesn't end up being preachy. I didn't want to bring this up, but this makes sense. The story was originally inspired by uh, stories from Ida Vinterberg, who is the director's unfortunately deceased daughter. Um, It was basically a play that she wrote, which revolved around, you know, drinking culture of Danish youth, as she put it. And originally the script for this movie was far more upbeat, but it was re- it was reworked to be a bit more uh, life-affirming, I guess you could call it. 
more along the lines of what's called tragic comedy, which is just a downbeat comedy overall. Ida uh, actually died about four days into filming in a car accident. Uh, but on an interesting side note, most of the students that you see in the film are actually her real-world classmates, and the uh, school is her actual school. And I think the whole thing works well because the drama, black comedy, tragedy, they're all blended so well that not only do they not get in each other's way, they actually end up complimenting each other and build off each other. I mean, for example, one scene we go from the four of them just partying it up at a bar, dancing, just generally having a good time. And then we cut to one of them and he's at home and his wife is like giving him these serious business because he came home super drunk and just pissed the bed. Martin, who is Mads Mikkelsen's character, uh, he passed out on the neighbor's doorstep trying to get into it, thinking it's his home. And there's also this general storyline of the is this progression going from maintaining that point zero five to doing an individual variable of a higher one because you know they reason well we all might react differently to the same one so we should try seeing how high we can go with this and they find their lives have improved as far as they're concerned but what happens is that they end up pushing this little monster of theirs as far as they can go the film as I said, is life-affirming, and in spite of the negative consequences of the alcohol use, it manages to be kind of fun and heartfelt and shows that, you know, you don't need to stop having fun just because you're getting old. <laughs> you just need to let yourself go once in a while. So yeah, really good one. Give it a watch. It's on Hulu, and I'm going to give this one a 9 out of 10 for now. Next up, we have X by Ty West. Now, this was a pleasant surprise because, honestly, it's been a very, very long time since I've seen a serious slasher movie that had legitimate suspense and interesting characters. And especially long since that we have those little qualities, and it's been a movie that wasn't a remake or a sequel or a reboot of something else. You know, I loved I, I loved 2018 Halloween, but that is still a sequel to something. This is a standalone so a brief synopsis just up front is that we have this little set of six characters and they're going to a small rural farmhouse in 1979 Texas to shoot a porno film. And eventually, as you might imagine, for a slasher movie, they get slowly killed off one by one. Uh, what's nice for this type of movie is that all the characters are distinct and easy to understand like right up front. They have some depth. It's not much, but... You know, it's enough that you can get invested and not so much that the film has to linger on it. So we've got Wayne, who's this uh, kind of laid-back cowboy guy. He's the producer of the film. He has ambitions of making it big in home video market, which this is 1979, so that is just starting to be a thing. Got RJ, who is a film nerd who has ambitions of his own. He's the writer slash director of the film in-universe. And this is kind of what I thought was funny. He's a bit of a stickler for details and... He's got a bit of an artsy, uh, he's got a bit of an artsy touch to it. He kind of annoys the others because he wants to add a sort of highbrow cinema touch. He's trying to make a classy porn film, as he puts it, and it kind of adds the sort of offbeat, occasionally self-aware humor throughout the movie. Uh, we have this kind of, at first, prudish girlfriend Lorraine, who's kind of put off by the whole thing, even though she's working as a Navy assistant. We've got Jackson, who is the male lead in Universe. He's this laid-back non-vet. Bobby Lynn, who's one of the female leads and is a bit of a diva. She actually kind of enjoys uh, needling Lorraine a little bit. 
I mean, it's not the worst thing in the movie, but there is this one scene where it's after one of the shoots they're doing. She just takes a towel, like wipes her lower back off and just tosses it to rain, like right in front of the floor. And then finally, we have the other female lead in universe, Maxine. Uh, Wayne's girlfriend, and she has ambitions of her own of making it big as an actress. And there's a rather interesting relationship to the killers in the movie, which I will not spoil. And it really works well because the tension is built up throughout the movie. Uh, the shot composition, music, pacing, etc., they all work together to give a very tense feeling throughout. Uh, one of the things that helps up is the helps it is the anticipation because the film opens, the very opening of the film is the ranch house that they're shooting this at. And you don't see much detail, but you just see a number of police cars uh, coming up and they're investigating the aftermath. As I said, there's a bit of uh, offbeat humor throughout the film that keeps the tension from building up too quickly. So it's it ratchets up a little bit. You'll have a joke thrown in. It comes down again, but not all the way. And then it just starts, starts building up again until you get to the actual you know kills. Uh, as far as visual style goes, there's a number of long takes spread throughout. There's a fantastic scene where uh, Maxine goes skinny dipping in a pond, and it cuts to a very overhead aerial wide shot, and you just see this like alligator swimming up to her. Um, again, sometimes for comical effect or for building up tension, the scenes uh, from the film the characters are shooting in-universe, they cut in between scenes in the actual movie. And they make that clear by the fact that the porno they're shooting has a sort of uh, sepia filter put over it and it has a different aspect ratio. And what's funny is that the music doesn't always switch with them. So there'll be this like creepy scene going on. You'll show a few, uh, they'll show like footage from the film they're shooting in universe. And it'll start with this that sort of stereotypical 70s jazz synth music, but sometimes it'll transition to the creepy discordant noise. But when the frames switch back and forth, it won't switch with them. It's a nice use of a, you know, I think it's called counterpoint generally, when you have music that doesn't match the scene very well. And honestly, if I had any minor complaint about the movie, it's that it could have played up the sort of like low-budget grimy feel that's aiming for a little bit more. It does still have that sort of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibe where, you know, it feels like it's shot by a bunch of lunatics. Um, there's a clearly a nod to it, the grainy sepia imagery for the porno, the whole premise, the uh, editing. Sometimes the frames will like flicker back and forth between the scene transitions. But what I mean is that they could have done something like the, if any of you have seen the movies Death Proof or Planet Terror, where the film throughout is sort of grungy, grainy, intentionally low quality, like it's being played on some cheap projector in a CD theater. But overall, yeah, it's a perfect example of what you can do, uh, even with such an overdone and cliche-ridden subgenre as slasher horror when you have a good script and some good actors. So give it a watch. If you can find it in the area, I had to schlub all the way down to Boston. So, yeah, that wasn't fun. But the movie was worth it, so I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10. Next up, we have Benedetta, directed by Paul Verhoeven. I actually heard a little about this before watching, but I had heard the overall story was based on. Uh, Benedetta Carlini was an Italian nun who supposedly performed several miracles and received holy visions during her life. 
Uh, eventually, however, she was revealed to have been having an affair with another nun in the convent. So for that, she was stripped of her rank in office and was imprisoned. The movie is basically a dramatization of these events, but this was not a story I looked heavily into, so um, even as much of a history nerd as I am, I can't speak to the accuracy. Uh, I will say for a Verhoeven movie, it kind of has a... It's a very mundane visual style, which I suppose is probably a good thing given how potentially sleazy this could be with the subject matter. Uh, Most of the shots are wonderfully composed. The staging and sets are excellently designed... They don't go heavy on the decoration. Um, It's enough to be interesting, but it doesn't distract you from what's going on. The main things detracting from this movie visually are the fact the shots involving dialogue are usually like medium and at a flat angle. And there's like a few, there's a handful of close-ups and there's a few of the visions were presented with some really, really bad digital effects. On the plus side, the music, whether it was diegetic or not, was used wonderfully, and it was used with restraint. Whatever scene it was in, it suited the mood, and it was it was wallpaper in a sense, which is how John Carpenter likes to put it. Um, it's there to add flavor. It doesn't direct the mood of the scene, though. And I do want to include this uh, just to get it out of the way. There are some. There's a scene with references to sexual violence, but it's all implied what's going on and it's not explicitly shown i I just feel the need to mention that if it's if even just the suggestion is going to be upsetting enough that you don't want to watch it i advise giving this a pass right now but yeah the acting was wonderful whether the scene called for restraint or hysterics if you want to put it that way it was a lot subtler on the satire than most of his other movies but it does still have his wit to it and Um, Yeah, whether it's accurate to the story or not, the premise is sort of used as a a vehicle to explore themes of religious devotion, uh, sexual repression, desire, the kind of guilt that happens when you're trying to balance these and you don't feel like you're doing a good job. Uh, You know, the implications that come with religion and power intersecting. So yeah, there's, there's probably a lot to talk about. I just didn't know how to really pick this one apart very well. So I'm going to go, so this will be, it's definitely still a strong showing, but it's definitely the weakest one on this list. So I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 for now. Again, I reserve the right to change my opinion later. Next up is Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, directed by The Daniels, which is a duo of directors who just both happen to be named Daniel. Uh, One's Daniel Kwan, the other is Daniel Scheinert, I believe his name is pronounced. And this movie is one I went into almost completely blind, and it's possibly going to break into my top 250, maybe even to my top 100. It's one of those few movies that I quite literally enjoyed every moment of. So our focus character is Evelyn Wang, played wonderfully by Michelle Yeoh of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon fame. And her whole situation at the start is she's a middle-aged Chinese immigrant. She's trying to take care of her elderly father. Uh, She and her husband are on the verge of divorce. She's estranged from her teen daughter, Joy. Laundromat business is failing. She's being audited. Essentially, she's trying to balance pretty much everything all at once, and she's just coping with the stress. Uh, I did really, really enjoy the way it handled the whole... Uh, chosen one unlikely hero trope it it actually has the trope called refusal of the call 
Uh, she basically gets told she's, she gets, she tries, someone tries to recruit her into dealing with this, um, situation. The plot is basically that there's some sort of multiverse that's endangered and she, for reasons I will not disclose here, is the sole person capable of saving the world. It's a ridiculous premise. It's executed in some of the most ridiculous ways possible and it just works perfectly. It's a perfect blend of action, comedy, and drama. The action goes from realistic and grounded to stylized in a manner similar to old martial arts movies to just what-the-hell-is-going-on-level reality-warping slapstick. Aside from Saints Row 3 or Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, this is perhaps the only place I've seen someone bludgeoned with a sex toy. The comedy is well-executed and doesn't interfere with the more serious moments of drama. The drama is grounded and relatable in most ways. And a lot of the themes are just dealing with, you know, alienation from family, the kind of absurdity of bureaucracy, um, you know, self-imposed feelings of failure, dealing with family expectations, and just the whole concept of what if, wondering what could have been, what you could have done, etc. The moments near the end when everything is just brought to resolution is so heartfelt and wholesome that it's honestly really wonderful. The effects, music, script, style, acting, all of it was just phenomenal all around. It was colorful, weird, and a wonderful form of confusion that kept me on the edge of my seat. Uh, I hate being redundant, but I absolutely love this movie, so just go see it because even if I were to just read the whole script, it wouldn't do the movie justice. I did not feel long at all, despite being almost two hours and 20 minutes long. And that's, <laughs> and yeah, it didn't feel long at all, despite the fact that the only seat that was available was like right in front of the screen. So I, my neck was hurting pretty bad at the end of it. But yeah, this is an easy 10 out of 10 for me. And finally, one I have been looking forward to ever since this director's last work was The Northman, directed by Robert Eggers who also directed 2015's The Witch and 2019's The Lighthouse. This is by far the most ambitious project of his, and I would argue his least abstract. Okay, so for those that don't know, this movie was based off the story in a medieval Danish historical document called the Gesta Norum, which, because I am a history nerd, yes, I have read, you can laugh at me if you want, contained within one of the stories of Danish history is the story of Prince Amleth. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because Shakespeare actually read the Gesta Norum, presumably, and basically took that story as the inspiration for the play Hamlet. So, very basically, Amleth is a young prince whose father, the king, is slain for his crown. Now, I'm not really giving anything away, really, because this version of the story is far more blatant about the uncle being guilty. He grows up, eventually returns to Iceland to avenge his father's death. And I mean, this is kind of a theme with Robert Eggers' movies in general, but the cinematography, first and foremost, is just gorgeous. Some of the long takes are either these like beautiful lockdown wide shots of the landscape. There's these beautifully smooth tracking shots. The violence is wonderfully choreographed, although if I had any complaint about the movie, it's that the acting gets really, really hammy during the fights. They're just screaming their heads off at points. I would like to add a caveat to the acting. The majority of the movie is in English with what I presume is a Scandinavian accent. And there are snippets in what I presume are Russian, but I don't really know. 
and there's snippets where I think it's some sort of uh, reconstructed Old Norse. And the dialogue is beautifully poetic, and it's sort of heightened. It's not quite stage play level, but it feels like it was lifted out of one of the Old Norse sagas. Uh, Willem Dafoe's in it, doesn't play a big role, but his character actually briefly narrates the opening, and it invokes Odin, kind of to the same way that a lot of Greek epic poems uh, invoked the muses at different points. I do... I do, as someone who's a bit of a history nerd, as I mentioned, I appreciate that Eggers did not shy away from depicting just how brutal the reality of the Viking Age was. The movie is just almost wonderfully kind of nihilistic in tone. It's It actually gave me like Game of Thrones vibes at points. The hero of the story as well, he resorts to rather horrific and honestly kind of just horribly cowardly shit that he does to achieve his goals. Also, I should mention that the movie does also have visual elements, plot elements, scenery, etc. that are not strictly in the realm of history or historical fiction. There are these just honestly stunningly beautiful moments depicted in dream sequences or what are implied to be hallucinations that seem to suggest either the presence of the supernatural or that the Norse gods themselves are getting involved. Um, it's very, very ambiguous. My advice is watch Eggers' two previous movies so that you know what to expect from his style-wise. Um, yeah, it's a brutal ride, but it's a rewarding one. I'm honestly impressed that the budget for this is actually was actually less than $4 million because it looks like it had, honestly, at least 10 times that. And I feel very confident in giving it a 10 out of 10. And I know some may think that I'm being biased because, as I mentioned, I love The Witch. I love The Lighthouse. The latter is probably one of my personal favorites. But, frankly, I have been fighting a horrible stomach bug for the last three days. And I am too exhausted during this recording to have any capacity for self-reflection or remorse. So, I am going to go take some aspirin, chug about three liters of ginger ale, take a nap, and when I wake up, I'm going to get around to giving in to my friends pestering and watch the batch watch the batman on hbo max anyway thanks for joining me take care signing off goodbye <laughs>